where Paul seeks to help us understand what is the future, or is there a future, for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, in God's plan, in God's economy of the world, salvation, history. Do the Jews have a future? Paul has been explaining to us God's choices, his choice of Abraham and the nation of Israel. He has explained to us in chapter 10 the the focus of salvation, in essence, you might say. And now as we come to chapter 11 this morning, there are three more things that stand out in Paul's total argument. I want us to get this morning those three things because two of them for sure apply directly to us and the third one is involved in our future hope. The first of the three that I want us to take away today is that no matter how hard a people become, uh, no matter how stubborn, no matter how rebellious, there is always an opportunity for salvation to those who will believe. God is always willing to extend the offer of salvation to those who will turn in faith to Him. Secondly, we need to recognize that there is no such thing as favored nation status with God. That God is not for or against any people group or country. His heart is to the faithful. And he will deal with the unfaithful and rebellious. And we cannot claim God's favor just because of who we are, unless it is combined with faith toward Him. And finally, God does have a future for Israel. There is a future for the Jews, and it's all wrapped up with our future. And there's a great day coming that is going to be most amazing in its ultimate result. First of all, if you look with me in Romans 11, beginning in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, They've killed the prophets, they've torn down your altars, I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But how does God respond to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. 
Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Paul, in these opening verses, says, Has God rejected Israel totally? Are they out of the picture? Are they out of the plan? And Paul says, That can't be true. He says, Look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I, I was a leading Jew. I was studying to be one of the leaders of our nation. And God saved me. God was gracious to me. And I'm a Jew. And I'm saved. And he says, remember Elijah, when in that dark time in Israel's history, it appeared as though everyone in the country had gone after the Baals and had gone after false idols. And Elijah was called to stand up for the truth. And he's complaining to God. And he says, God, there's no one left but me. And God says, Elijah... I have 7,000 men that have never bent the knee to Baal. Men that you don't know about, but I know about. I know their heart. And Paul cites that as an example. That God is always willing and able to preserve a remnant of people, even in the darkest of times. Some people question today, why should we be interested in evangelization of the Jewish people? Why should we be concerned for witnessing to the Jews? Why should we get involved in messianic movements or Jews for Jesus or some of these kinds of missions whose outreach is to the Jews? But the very presence of these missions answer the question. For the most part, they are comprised of converted Jews. People who have come to Christ, who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and now want to witness to their countrymen that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and their Savior. And in all times and all places, God has always been willing to reach out to those who would turn to Him, to reach out to the Jew and to offer salvation. And indeed, today, the offer of salvation is available to any Jew who will turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are under a divine mandate, not only to the world, but to the Jew, to seek to win them to Jesus Christ. And yet we are told that there is a flow to history, and the Jewish people as a nation have by and large rejected their Messiah. They've turned away from Christ. They've hardened their hearts in stubbornness. And God has allowed a spirit of stupor. He has sent a spirit of stupor, as it were, upon them because of the hardness of their own heart. We go back to Pharaoh. It's the same kind of a thing where the Jewish people have rejected God, and God has allowed that hardness to abide and remain on them, so that for the most part they cannot see and they cannot understand. As time goes along, they, for the most part, are not willing to turn to Jesus Christ. There is a, a heritage of rebellion 
among the Jewish nation. We need to, uh, I didn't say this at 8 o'clock, I feel it's important to say it now for whatever reason, but we need to be able to separate our politics from our theology. Now, I'm not saying that our theology should not influence our politics, it should. Uh, we should be Christians in every arena of our lives, th through and through. But we need to recognize that Israel as a nation among nations and the Jewish people as, as a group are, are another nation among the world. And they have their own peculiarities and their own situations. And what God is going to do with the Jewish people and the Jewish heart in terms of the church and the future and the return of Jesus Christ and how we relate to them and how the other nations of the world relate to them are, in essence, two different things. So far in history, the United States has remained one of the truest friends to Israel. And I commend that, but it doesn't mean that Israel, the Israelites are always right doesn't mean the Arabs are always wrong. Somehow, sometimes we need to see through all of that. But the Bible tells us there's going to come a time when there are no nations that stand with Israel. And yet, as Christian people, we have a divine responsibility, not as Americans or any other nationality, but we have a divine responsibility to pray for all people, and to witness to all people, and to love all people, and to point all people to Christ, and to hope and pray that Jews will come to Christ, without regard to the politics of the situation, or without regard to the national interaction and, and uh, that kind of a scene. God is taking history where he's taking history. And as time goes along, there will come a day when all the world will be opposed to Israel. But guess what? The church that abides at that time will also be in the same soup with them. The same enemy that hates the nation of Israel hates the church. And there will be a time when the one thing that believing people share with unbelieving Jews is they together are commonly hated by the Antichrist and the nations of the world. And we are encouraged to pray for Israel and for the peace of Israel. Nonetheless, in this moment of time, they are a hard-hearted people with respect to the gospel. And in fact, in the nation of Israel today, it is officially against the law to evangelize Jewish people to Christ. They are opposed to that notion because of the hardness of their heart. But God will still save every Jew who turns to Jesus. He is still willing to do that. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. 
Now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the fulfillment be? I want to point out to us the, the way that God works in human history along with the natural inclination of the human heart. You know, one of the things we all have in common, we're all people. And people just have certain characteristics. Most people resist change. There are some adventuresome souls that like change. You know, and they're, they're the adventurers among us. And we, and we all celebrate them because they're so unique. They're so different from the rest of us who, you know, never get out of our hometown hardly, so to speak. We have that mentality of, of just kind of maintaining the status quo and we make heroes out of the adventurers. By and large, people tend to resist change. And when you think about what happened in Jerusalem after Pentecost, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. When did that happen, that they went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and utterly, utterly uh, to ultimately to the uttermost part of the world. When did that occur? When the Jewish people, in the hardness of their heart, got so riled up that they began to persecute the apostolic church. It was persecution and the hardness of Israel that drove the apostles out of Jerusalem that drove the disciples away, that caused them to go to the uttermost part of the earth. It was the very rebellion of Israel against the church that caused the church to be what it was supposed to be. If you think about it, God had to build a fire under the church, as it were, and the hardness of the Jewish people was a part of what he used. And every time Paul went to a new town to evangelize, he went to a synagogue first. And within a few weeks, they had thrown him out. And then he went to the marketplace and shared Jesus with the Gentiles. It was the very hardness of Israel that pushed evangelism into the Gentile world. And human nature being what it is, the the Jewish heart being what it is, and, and even the newly born church of Christ being comprised of people who resist change, needed all of those circumstances to accomplish the will and purposes of God. And so Paul tells us their transgression has caused salvation to come to the Gentiles. This is not a bad thing necessarily. That's why I've said before, and I say it again, one day we're going to see the devil stand before the bar of justice in the court of eternity, God on the throne at the judge's bench, 
and realized that every time he opposed God, it turned on him. And when he hardened, the devil I'm speaking of now, brought hardness to the hearts of Israel, and in rebellion they hardened themselves against God in Satan's effort to destroy the Jews and the church, all that happened was the church exploded into the whole Roman Empire because of persecution. And the church was built on the blood of the martyrs and the witness of the faithful who were scattered because of persecution. God always wins. So he says, if their transgression became riches for the world and their failure became riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Verse 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now, I want to say something here as an introduction to these next few verses. It's very important. I believe, I said it in the beginning of chapter 9, and I, and I reinforce it now, I believe that Paul is speaking here about people groups, about nations and nationalities, not about individuals. And I believe that throughout this passage, Paul is answering the question, what about the Jews as a people? I'm very concerned when people take these verses and try to apply them individually to personal election. Because I don't believe Paul is talking in these chapters about personal election or personal salvation. He's talking about groups of people. And he says, I'm writing to you Gentiles as a group. All of you Gentiles now are in my focus. Not the individual born-again people in Rome, but all of you Gentiles. And this is what he says. In verse 15, or verse 14, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, Paul's still hoping for some Jewish redemption, for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also, and if the root be holy, the branches are too. Now, a word here about holy. Holy in this passage is not specifically talking about righteousness, but about being set apart. He's not saying to us that all of these Israelites are righteous, godly people from Abraham on. But he is saying they're chosen. They're, they're separated. They are sanctified unto God. Ultimately, the goal is for everyone who is set apart unto God to be holy. But the issue here is not so much their moral character as it is their, their sanctification, their separateness. They've been set apart. And he says, if the, the first part of the, of the lump has been made separate, then the whole lump is. If the first piece of dough, this 
concept of being uh, set apart unto God. And verse 47, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles as a group, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. You see what he's saying? He's giving us a metaphor. Here's an olive tree. This olive tree represents the tree of the faithful. The faithful. The Jews are part of it. Abraham is the very bottom taproot. And here's this tree that Abraham basically was the foundation as he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And out of that stock, out of that tree, God cultivated an olive tree that would produce fruit for him. And Paul says as that tree began to develop, God nurtured it. But he said, there came a time when the natural branches stopped producing fruit. And God cut them off. And God went in search of potential fruit in the wild olives. And he took branches from the wild olive, the uncultivated, the, the unsanctified, and he grafted them into this rootstock of Abraham, the stock of faith. Brought them into the, to the olive tree. And what happened? They took of the sap, they took of the nutrients of that healthy, vibrant, cultured tree that God has been tending. And they became fruitful. And now they're part of this heritage of faith. People say, when did the church begin? Well, the church officially began at the time of Pentecost. But the people of God, of whom the church is a part, began long before that. And the criteria for being among the people of God has always been faith. And I propose to you that it has always been faith in the cross and in Jesus Christ. From the time that God showed up in the garden and killed a couple of his creatures to bring a covering for the nakedness of Adam and Eve, he taught them the principle that sin results in death and the shedding of blood is necessary to cover Shame and sin. And that was a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Abel got it. And others after him, Seth and the righteous line, got it. And they understood that they needed to sacrifice and shed blood because it was blood that was needed to cover sin and it all pointed to the cross. And many of the Old Testament believers did not understand in full what they were doing, but they were prefiguring the cross. 
But it wasn't until Jesus came and actually died that they could be truly and literally cleansed because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. And when the church was born, it was born on the heels of the restoration of the whole Old Testament group of people who had trusted God that were ushered into his presence. I believe the scripture teaches that Jesus, after he died on the cross, he did not go to hell to suffer, but he went to Abraham's bosom to announce liberty to the captive and to, and to lead captivity captive to take them into the presence of God face to face with God because they were now cleansed. And we share that heritage. And Abraham is the focal point even 2,000 years after Adam and 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham is the focal point of the one who believed God. And so Paul says what God has done is he's taking the Jewish people who were unfaithful, rebellious. They turned away from God. He took those branches and cut them off. And now he's gone to the Gentiles and grafted them in. And he says, when you see that happening, don't be arrogant, verse 18, toward the branches. <laughs> if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You can't say, I, I have no use for Israel, I have no use for the Jews, I have no use for the Old Testament, I have no use for all that temple stuff. Friends, our whole New Testament Christian life is built on the foundation of God's interaction with human beings beginning in Genesis through Malachi. And if you want to be a good student of the New Testament, you've got to read the Old Testament. You cannot fully comprehend the New Testament unless you read the Old Testament. All of the references, that right here in this passage that we're talking about, in my Bible, in all capital letters, I have these sections all throughout it, all capital letters, quotes right out of the Old Testament. All through the New Testament, there are quotes referring to the Old Testament where the writers are taking us back to the root, to the history. We don't support them, they support us. God's working in history through Israel. And here's the real key point in all of this. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. <clears throat> Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand by your faith. In other words, the criteria for inclusion or exclusion is unbelief or faith. Are you a believing people or an unbelieving people? Are you a rebellious people or are you a faithful people? This is the question. And then he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. 
If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. We're talking about people groups and nations, not individuals. If I had time this morning to preach two sermons, friends, I could preach an entire sermon on the security of the believer. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have truly turned from our sin. When we have truly received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the forgiveness of our sin, God himself puts the Holy Spirit in our life as what? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, the earnest of our salvation, the down payment, the guarantee. God says, I will redeem this one who has my spirit. It's a guarantee. Paul says, I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. We've just finished Romans 8 where Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You as an individual believer who have truly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and, I, and I'm underscoring the truly part. There's people who sit in church, probably some here this morning, who have never been born again. You've come to church for 25, 30 years. You've listened to the message. You've given assent to all the truth. You believe everything that's been said, but you have never truly bent the knee to Jesus Christ, acknowledged your sinful condition, trusted Him as Lord and Savior, surrendered your life to Him, and invited Him to cleanse you and live within your life and, and be your master and, and your king. You've never done that. You've been through all the motions. You've been baptized. You joined the church. You gave a testimony to the elders about something that happened to you somewhere along the way. But you've never, ever in your heart of hearts, had that face-to-face meeting with God where you were born again. But if you have been born again, you are safe in the hand of God. No one can pluck them out of my hand, Jesus said. No one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. You are safe in Him. He makes a covenant with you that He alone endeavors to undertake to keep it. And I'm grateful for that. I'm so thankful. In our staff meeting on Friday, as we sat together, I gave a devotional from Psalm 37, and, and where David says the steps of a good man, good is kind of implied, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and though he stumble, he shall not be hurled headlong to his face because the Lord upholds him with his hand. And I never got the full import of that verse until my boys were little guys. They were toddlers. They're called toddlers for a reason because they toddle, you know, and they stumble frequently and they trip and they step off curbs and go on their nose. That's what toddlers do. And every parent has done this. Hold my hand. But what do you, do, when you say hold my hand, does that mean the little kid reaches up and grabs? No, that means put your hand up here so I can get a grip. That's what hold my hand means. 
And sometimes I would have one on each side hold my hand, and I would grip their little hands. And whether we were going up the stairs or across the street or wherever we were going, or it was a place of danger, and the tennis shoe would catch because they forgot to pick up a foot in the process of walking, and they would stumble. You know, sometimes they would just stumble totally. I mean, they would just lose it, and I'd feel one hand or the other go down, but they didn't. You know, and there are times, you know, you'd be headed down the steps and they'd stumble and now you've got the whole child dangling by his wrist. But you've got him. And that's exactly what David is saying. God holds me up with his hand. I stuck my little hand up and said, save me, Jesus. And he reached down and took a hold and he's got a grip on my life, man. And I can totally lose my footing and go anti-gravity like in a heartbeat, but I will not fall on my face because God holds me up with His hand. I'm grateful for that. So Paul is not talking about individuals. If you try to put individuals into this passage, you wreck all the rest of your theology that I hope you have. He's talking about groups of people, nations. And here's the message. The Jewish nation rejected God, even though there's a remnant. God cut them off. He threw them out of the tree. He went to the Gentiles and grafted them in. But you Gentile people, as a group, don't think you have favored nation status with God. Because if you turn in unbelief, He'll cut you out just like He did His own natural branches. He'll whack you out of the tree and start with somebody else. There's not a nation on the face of the earth that can say, I'm special before God, except Israel, and he didn't even keep them in the tree. So who do you think you are? There's no question in history that this nation was founded at least in part, and it was a significant amount of the driving ambition of many of the pilgrims and pioneers to find a place of religious freedom. I know that we've been trying to get more brutally honest about our history, and I know there was a lot of deists back in that day and a lot of nutcases that signed the Declaration and the Constitution and all that, and many of them did not have faith, real faith in in the living God according to the Scriptures. I know that. But you cannot deny the fact that the history of this nation has a heritage of seeking God. And the first university that was established, we call them the Ivy League schools, but Harvard was founded by the Puritans to promote the message of Jesus Christ and to train people for ministry. And it was Jonathan Edwards' family and that crowd that thought they'd gone liberal and they started Yale. And all of them have eventually gone off the wire. But you can read the history of Yale even into the middle of the 19th century. And there were revival times when there was a great turning back to God in the university. And the history of the Great Awakenings throughout this country and the, and the sawdust revivals and the revivals out west. And you look at the history of this country and in the 
middle 19th century and on through the 20th century, the United States of America has sent out more missionaries to the rest of the world than any other country in history. But there is no way anyone in their right mind can look at this country today and say, in God we trust one nation under God. We are an ungodly, pagan, postmodern, post-Christian, self-centered, materialistic, godless society that has turned its back on the living God. We can't see it any other way if you've got eyes to see. We have completely left our roots and our minds. We've gone the other direction. There is no favored nation status. If a people group does that, God says, I'll cut you out of the tree just in a heartbeat. I'll go find somebody else. He doesn't need any country. He doesn't give any country favorites. That's why we need to recognize that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We have a higher allegiance. I pray for this nation. I pray for its leaders. The Bible tells me to do that. I pray for revival. I seek to win people to Jesus Christ. But I'm not under any illusion that because I'm a citizen of the United States, I'm under some divine protection. If ever 9-11 meant anything else, that should have been the day of wake up. That wasn't just the day that terrorism came to our soil. That was the day that said to me, from God, I'm taking my hands off. You guys are on your own. We have no idea what's coming. But we who know Jesus know where we stand. And even in a backslidden nation, there is the opportunity for a remnant. We can preach, we can witness, we can reach out. There's the chance that some will come to Christ. England was one of the greatest leaders of evangelicalism 200 years ago, and today less than 10% even profess any kind of faith in Christ. And fewer than that probably know him. And one by one, God will turn elsewhere. South Korea in the last 40, 50 years has become a powerful nation of Christian witness and sending out missionaries. And now he's turning to many Latino nations to raise them up as evangelical witnesses because God will use the people that are faithful and he will cut out the branches that aren't. That's the message of this passage. And so, Paul says in 24, if you were cut off from what, it, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are the natural branches be grafted back in? He says, don't give up on Israel. Here's the final part of the message. 
For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. The mystery, what? That the natural branches are going to be grafted back in. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. This is the day to win the world for Christ. There will be Jews who trust him, but they will be a trickle. This is the day to win the world for Christ. But there will come a day when that opportunity is also closed. And in that day, God will turn his heart back to Israel. And thus, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Now, now some people say, here's another reason not to evangelize the Jews. One reason is God turned his back on them. No, he hasn't. There's still a remnant. Win all you can. He still loves them. Now they say, okay, well, why bother? They're all going to be saved. No, silly. They're not all going to be saved like everybody that's ever lived. What do you have to do to be saved? Trust Jesus Christ. Thank you. Yes, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you die without Christ, you're dead in your sin, and there's judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes a judgment. No dead Israelite's going to ever be in heaven if he didn't trust Jesus Christ. So not all Israel like everybody's ever lived. What's he talking about? He's talking about everybody that's alive at a particular moment. Oh, and that's an exciting moment. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God called Abraham and made a promise to him. And he said, I will keep that promise. God's calling is irrevocable to Abraham. I will keep my promise. And his gift of salvation and what he offered them, and he will not turn back on that. Because they've been sh- they were once disobedient, but now they've been shown mercy in their disobedience because of it, so also now they've been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they can be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. I want to read just a couple of verses from Isaiah and, and Zechariah, and then I'm done. But in Isaiah 66, I want to give you just a little bit of background here. This is talking about after the, the nation of Israel has come back together, which, by the way, happened in 1948 just celebrated Israel's 50th anniversary a few weeks ago. And now today there's a nation of Israel when there hasn't been one for 1,800 years. 1,900 years. Now there's a nation of Israel. Isn't that amazing? And God is bringing them back from all the corners of the earth. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 66, Before she travailed, she brought forth, Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? 
As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who give delivery shuts the womb, shut the womb, says your God? Isaiah is speaking here of the nation of Israel coming to life. It's, it's Ezekiel's valley of the dry bones all over again. And the question that he's asking is, can this nation come to life, a whole nation, in one day? And the answer is yes. Am I going to bring Israel right to the brink and not deliver her successfully? And Zechariah puts the finishing touches on that. I wish I had time to develop this more thoroughly, but I don't. But in Zechariah, and I want to begin with chapter 12, verse 8, <clears throat> next to the last book in the Old Testament. Go home this afternoon, read the last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, for the whole picture. But 12, 8 of Zechariah, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, and the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now let me explain that day to you, because the Scripture says that in the last days of the world, we're talking the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist has been ruling, all the nations of the earth have formed a coalition, only Israel is left out, and now the, the devil's hatred has finally fulminated to, to the, the fever pitch of this is the time to wipe out what remains of the church and to wipe out Israel. We're going to get rid of everybody, we're going to kill off the nation of Israel, and all the armies of the world that are now working together synergistically under the Antichrist have, have formed a ring around Jerusalem and around Israel, and she is hemmed in. And she's looking and realizes there's no way out. All the nations of the world have gathered against her. And God says, In that day I will pour out on the house of David, verse 10, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they, the, the nation of Israel, will look on me whom they pierced. Who's talking here? This is Jesus. They will see me whom they pierced. And recognize him. And recognize him. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him that day, because they will see Jesus. And Zechariah goes on to unfold the plan. He talks about Jesus in verse 14, chapter 14, setting his feet on the Mount of Olives and it having divided into two and the King of Kings coming into the midst of Jerusalem and, and the power of the Lord going out and slaying all the armies in Israel's last hour when it looks like there's no hope. Jesus Christ will descend, and all the Scripture says in chapter 14 of Zechariah, all his holy ones with him, guess who that is? Amen. And, we're, and he is going to descend and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and Israel will see the Lord Jesus 
and recognize because God will give them a spirit of grace and supplication and repentance and they will see him and they will know this is our Messiah. This is the Jesus our fathers put on the cross. This is the Jesus who died and was buried 2,000 years ago. He is risen. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. We welcome him. We're grieving over what we've done, but we receive him today. And this whole nation of Israel will look on him whom they've pierced and believe. And in that day, the whole nation will be saved. And in that day, Jesus Christ will destroy the armies of the world, bind the devil and the Antichrist for a thousand years, destroy the Antichrist, bind the devil, and set up his kingdom. And that great marriage supper we were talking about will begin when we are forever with the Lord, starting with a feast as we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the nation of Israel will be saved in that day. God has not forgotten his people. There are too many prophecies in Scripture that have never been fulfilled concerning Israel. And God always keeps his word. He is a covenant-keeping God. There is a future for the nation, and we're going to be part of it. I'm looking forward to it. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.